Welcome to this latest edition of The Delivery Profits, brought to you by the Delivery.World, together with Avico. I'm Peter Backman, and today, together with John Borzacchiello, we'll talk about dark kitchens. Some people call them ghost kitchens, or shadow kitchens, or virtual kitchens, or delivery kitchens. The list is a long one. And we're going to try to get a deep understanding of the forces shaping this rapidly evolving sector with our special guest, Tim Vasilakis. But before we get on to that, John, I was thinking the other day, our guest has written a book, and have you, and before I ask you to answer that question, um, you ought to know that I've written three. Uh, two have been published. One is waiting to, in the wings. I've just reprinted the second edition of my book, Restaurants Also Serve Food. So I'm almost an author. Um, have you ever wanted to be one? Interesting you say that, Peter. I've never, ever thought of writing a book. Um, I know my father-in-law um, plans to write a book, Paul. He is a barber, and he is going to write the stories he has been told over the years, which, as you can imagine, a barber talking to lots of different people from all walks of life every day. It's something he's been noting for 40-plus years now, so he plans to write that when he's retired. And uh, where can you get your books from, Peter? Oh, well, that's, um, a, a, that's a plug. Um, restaurants also serve food. You can get it from me, from my, um, you can get it from me, my own personal website, which is um, peter at peterbackmanfs.com. That's different from the delivery profits. Um, and you can also get it from Amazon. Okay, I'm going to have a look into that. It was uh, interesting last night. We went to that arena event last night, Peter, and it was fantastic. The uh, quality of people there, Everyone was so friendly. Obviously, uh, Dr. Andy Kemp got his uh, lifetime presidency. You said some fast, fantastic words. What a great evening. It was. It really was. And we hope to be running many more. I mean, Arena runs about six events a year. They're all fantastic. No, definitely. Say. And what you were saying as well about the junior networking events you're now introducing as an organisation, um, for some of my team, I think it'd be really powerful for those guys to join, especially when... Like you say, it's more casual. It's laid back jeans and a shirt rather than a formal. And having people like Tom Elliott do the last one for you must be fantastic. Uh, it, it is. And it's got tremendous support, a tremendous group of um, people running it. Uh, it's called Arena Futures, and it's certainly something to keep one's um, eye on. Definitely, for the up-and-coming people in the industry. Absolutely. I think it's probably time to get the show on the road. And in order to do that, I'm going to set the scene, as I usually do, with some uh, thoughts that we can all discuss and perhaps then pull apart. It's a commonplace, but nevertheless true, that it's people that make the world go round. And they certainly make the world of delivery go round. Without people wanting to order just cooked food for eating at home, there'd be no orders for restaurant delivery, and no orders means no business. But, and again, it's a truism, People vary enormously. They can be fickle, they can be demanding, they can be tenacious. Their confidence may be swayed by the state of their personal economy, uh, whether they feel they have enough money, or by how well their football team played on Saturday. In short, people are human. And that makes it difficult to understand them, and it makes it difficult to work out where they're going. And since this podcast is about delivery... It makes it difficult to work out how they may want to change their use of restaurant delivery. Uh, will they want more of it? Will they want less? Will they be willing to spend more? And on what? What sort of food are they going to eat next week, next month, next year? 
get the answers right, and as an operator, supplier, aggregator, or whoever, you'll have a fighting chance of being successful. Get the answers wrong, and life will be more difficult for you. So customers and their changing demands are an important part of working out where the future lies for restaurant delivery, just as it is important in any other endeavor. Of course, it's not only customers, um, operators, aggregators, ghost kitchen owners, and many others all have their role to play in the future. And they raise a whole bunch of questions, such as what role does franchising play in the future of delivery? What about virtual brands? I could go on raising questions, but I guess we have to move on. Uh, but before I do, I have one more thought to add. Do we really need to have the answers or can we just suck it and see? John, what do you think? I think suck it and see is such a great phrase there, Peter. When you're talking around people making choices, making decisions, um, when you walk through London as a big city and you see the bricks and mortar and you can have absolutely any cuisine in the world. In the world, there, there are so many choices. And I find myself at times walking down thinking, I really fancy a, a pizza today. But actually, I don't have that because I see something else that takes my fancy before. And with the dark kitchens, with restaurants going into more of delivery, I think that takes away. Um, aggregators can have all the algorithms that they want and want to have but it's actually like you say, did a football team win? Have you had a big discussion at work and it didn't go the way you want to? Are you celebrating? There's so many different emotions that drive people. And food is such an emotional topic. And now everything is available on delivery. It's not a case of we've got to go to that restaurant, we've got to go there. They can have anything in their hands within 30 minutes. Yes, but as we've discussed on, on, on a couple of these podcasts, it, it's also... Um, uh, making that relationship with the customer through the mechanism of a of an app and a delivery and eating it at home versus going into a restaurant. So you, there are two sides to it. Definitely. And you talked about franchises as well. Uh, and I'm always a, does a franchisee have the same passion as a business owner? Is it the brand that the owner sets up and believes in and has that passion? When you're a franchisee, I'm asking the question, is that passion as strong? Well, I don't know. Perhaps our guest does, but I'll just venture my answer first. Uh, and that is that um, it's obviously up to the individual franchisee, but I would imagine that some franchise franchisees absolutely love their brand and know what it's about and really build on it, and others are, are competent uh, managers of the brand. So I, I guess there are two, but I'd be interested to know what our guest says. So that seems to me to be quite a good opportunity to uh, welcome you, Tim. Um, for those who don't know him, Tim is founder, CEO and cookbook author of The Athenian. So, Tim, um, do you want to take issue with anything we've said? Do you want to agree? Do you want to pull them apart? Where are you on this? Hi, Peter. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me in your podcast. Um yeah, so on delivery, so I think I have maybe a slightly different point of view because um, I've now seen it for the last eight years of running the Athenian from the other side of um, running and operating delivery kitchens and also running and operating bricks and mortar and then on to the franchise very recently. 
um, getting into um, the licensing model as well. So I think I've seen it kind of like 360 on this. I, I still kind of like on the franchise topic, I still feel like I need a bit more experience on it to have a fully um, formed view on it. But I'm, I'm, I'm starting to have some kind of idea. So on the topic of delivery, um, in my view, I think where, where I see or where at least I would like to see delivery head in the future um, with the big companies like Deliveroo, Uber Eats, um, you know, delivery here outside of the UK would be um, a world where online delivery starts to show up in the real world and we no longer just order something on our sofa. Um, a little bit like what Amazon have done with Amazon Fresh, uh, where it's now a proper retail business and you can walk in and you can have an experience and it's not just something that you only order online. So I feel like, you know, if anyone from Deliveroo is listening or from Uber, perhaps, you know, this is a good time to start taking notes because I think um, it's definitely a good product development for those companies. But that's where I would like to see in the future, just kind of like perhaps uh, a space where customers could interact um, physically, um, do a collection, a click and collect um, and also potentially maybe a market hall concept, a bit like a box pack, but branded after those companies, maybe like a Deliveroo hall where um, you can do delivery as normal, but you can also go and walk up and collect um, your food from there. <clears throat> so I think that's what's going to be interesting in the future to see where things are heading, because I feel like, you know, we've established delivery now as a service. It's definitely something that people want. Um, we, we, we're in the post-pandemic world now. And, you know, my worry was um, in a post-pandemic world, where does delivery sit? But as, as I can see the data now on the other side, delivery is here to stay. And, you know, it's just become part of our lives. It's been integrated so well into our lives that... Um, People really want it. People use it. It's it's no longer, we consider, maybe some of us consider it as a luxury, but seeing how people use it, I personally don't consider it a luxury anymore. I, I, I consider it a pretty basic um, commodity, especially in big cities like London, where people just don't have the time uh, for cooking or sometimes even going to the shop. Uh, so so you've, you've covered an awful lot of ground there. Um, so I, I think we, I don't know if we want to pick it apart, but to just delve into a little bit more detail, but, um, two things that have struck me. One is you talked about licensing and franchising, and I'd be interested to know, um, whether in your view, they are the same thing or they're different. And if so, how they differ. And the other thing is this food hall idea that you mentioned. We had, um, Ecky Newton, uh, from Karma Kitchen on, uh, the podcast, um, a few weeks ago, uh, and she talked about her, the food, uh, the kitchen hub that they run uh, in their new um, uh, kitchen, um, which seems to be built on a food hall model. Maybe you know about it, um, um, and maybe you've got some views. So we do work with Karma. Uh, we have a kitchen with them in Wood Green in North London. And we've been working with them for about three years now. On the franchising topic, um, in my view, there's two types of licensing that you can do a direct franchising where somebody uh, operates your brand directly. And then there's also sub-licensing. So a company that has the master rights for the brand and they also have the right to sub-license it to somebody else or to various other companies. Um, so... 
the more layers you get into franchising, the more difficult it becomes to control and to maintain standards. Uh, so it will be interesting to see what happens. This is all very new to me. Um, but uh, I'm still kind of like gathering experience on how, what it's like to operate under the different models. And like, I think in a year from now, I'll have a better idea of, you know, what's, what's the best kind of like, it does seem so far, it does seem like a direct franchise where somebody operates your brand directly without a sub-licensing seems to be operated better than a sub-licensee. It also depends on the sub-licensee, on what they want, on what they need. If it's just additional revenue that they want, that obviously takes a hit. Um, but yeah, on the topic of karma, I wasn't aware that they were building something that was more like a food hall. It would be interesting to maybe reach out to them and find out a bit more. But that well, seems like more innovative. I, I don't know if I'm misquoting things, John, but but this is in that uh, I'm talking about their new the kitchen that they launched. Uh, a few months ago now in Bermondsey. I can remember Eki saying actually they were inviting people in. So what the idea is, they, they don't like uh, at Karma the dark kitchen phrase. It was more inviting people in to see what their kitchens were about. Actually, they're bright, they're open, they're spacious. There's lots of room for people to work, not just restaurant brands, but they also have the box deliveries out of there. So what I believe Karma and Eki want to do in Ginny is open that world up so it's not just thing, people thinking it's a dark underground kitchen, that actually people can go there. And she also spoke about people being able to collect, didn't she? She did. One of their operators do collection as well from there now. So it's not just delivery, Peter. Yeah. It's around collection. And I, I just want to go back to something Tim was saying, Peter. And you, you've been in the industry a long time. And I often see um, from the world that I'm in with Avico is, a master franchisee is someone that normally moves to take over a country location and then sublets, whereas a direct team like you're talking around is more a um, you're selling a franchise to a person or they may take over a location for you, so a city of Manchester and the surrounding. Are you looking to also go abroad? Is it something that's ever been in the plans? Yeah, so actually we do have an operation in Spain. We have four locations in Spain. And interestingly enough, the delivery kitchens in Spain, they do seem to operate. Um, they, they are set up for collection. Although I'm yet to witness a place where they do the collection, the, where the collection is executed well enough. Um, it does seem to be a bit of a side thought. Like in Spain, they have like a, a reception where people can walk up to and um, order delivery. But in terms of like pushing that, it doesn't seem to be that well executed. So, and also in the UK, I'm yet to see somebody executing that kind of like collection point well. In my experience, a lot of the dark kitchens um, that are operated across the country are in in neighborhoods that are not really set up for customers to visit. So uh, it might just be like industrial parks with a lot of space for, for a delivery kitchen to be set up, like old warehouses and things like that. So that, that alone doesn't set up for a nice customer experience. It needs to be on like either high street or just like a normal neighborhood where people can walk up and, uh, and collect the food. So I think that alone will be very hard for any older delivery kitchens to convert to a collection model or to a more kind of like physical uh, model. But it will be interesting to see um, who opens a, a delivery kitchen and does it first and does executes it really well because I feel like it only takes one player to do it, do it well, and then everybody else will copy it. Uh, but running a franchise, it, it seems to me, and, and we're not, I'm not just talking about um, um, delivery franchises, but high, high street franchises, burger chains and so on. Um, it seems to me that the, there are two key things 
um, three, if you count, having a good franchise franchisor. Um, the first thing is absolutely understanding what your brand, what your product is about, um, being very clear on that and, and, and sticking to it. And then the other thing is having very clear rules of, of rules of engagement, you know, the, the way that the franchise franchisor has to work. Um, and I, and I guess that is, is part and parcel of what you're doing. Yeah, that's correct. Um, even with um, tight kind of like controls in place, I feel like, you know, the, ultimately if somebody doesn't operate the brand, the brand well, you're only left with a, with a possibility to just pull it off from that location. Um, but yeah, it really comes down to who operates it, what they want out of it, and um, how experienced they are. Mm. Carrying on with this franchise, um, you, you often see when you're in the industry that that let, and we haven't spoke about the big three much, Peter, on these podcasts. But if we look at the big three, so let's take RBI, Restaurant Brands International. So most people will know them for Burger King, but of course they um, they own Tim Hortons as a brand and they own Popeyes as a brand. They have master franchisees in the UK and across Europe that are rolling these brands out at a huge speed in the UK. So. Tim Hortons have been going now a number of years. Popeyes are quite new to the market. Last year they joined. But these guys are really successfully rolling these brands out. And what's interesting, Tim, all the things that you're saying is they have the bricks and mortar sites, they have collection points inside their sites, but they also have these back doors, as I call them, where it's a delivery collection point. So it's where an aggregator can arrive not be in the restaurant with the aggregator bag on and the helmet, but they're out of the way of the consumer. Is is this something as a model that that can be expanded? And you, you spoke about delivery almost doing a market halls, but when I think about that now, I look at Box Park, I look at market halls, I look at Curb at Camden. Are those type of operators almost the the model that could expand? They could have the bricks and mortar. They could have the collection from their site through an app. They have the delivery capabilities. Is it almost technology that's going to drive this? An interesting point. I think for um, for the big kind of like food halls that have got like Boxpack or like Curb, that their main experience is rolling out a physical experience for people to visit. Um I think the business model is quite different and um, they probably don't have access to data for delivery sales, um, which is quite an important point for them to make this decision to maybe switch or do like a bit of a hybrid model. Or I feel like that's where somewhere like Deliveroo or Uber Eats will come in in the future or like uh, companies like Growth Kitchens, who we work closely with, that they started from a dark kitchen model. And um, I see them as more likely to convert into the real world and uh, go into a hybrid model as opposed to someone like Boxpark or Curb to um, set up a food hall that is maybe primarily positioned as offline delivery, if you see what I mean. It just seems to be going against what the model is. I could be proven wrong, but I have a feeling, you know, because Deliveroo have access to that data. I know, you know, some other players um, are collecting data on, you know, the what sells like the um, delivery platform market share um, and so on. 
So if you've got the data for specific locations in the country, it just makes it much easier for you to decide if you were to do that kind of concept, where to do it, and just literally go ahead and roll it out. If I'm not mistaken, Deliveroo already have something like that in Singapore, okay. um, but they haven't attempted it in the UK just yet. I'm not really sure why, but it would be interesting to understand if it's worked out for them. I think it's all about execution for that kind of model to work. Um, but it would also be very good marketing for these companies. If you see a Deliveroo branded um, food hall where you can order delivery when you're at home um, within the radius, obviously, but also when you're finishing from work, you can pop by and pick up your food through the Deliveroo app and they can really push it to be done through the app so that, you know, that experience and that habit uh, gets integrated even more into your daily life. That's kind of like where I see the benefits for those companies to really get incentivized to do it. Um, and to me, like as, a, as an operator, it's just a no brainer. And the next thing I would maybe expect them to do in the future um, is again, because they have access to data, they can see like brands like the Athenian, what, what we sell, like how much, how, how do we benchmark against other brands? They have all of the data. They can potentially, you know, start thinking about licensing some of these brands um, so that they can operate it themselves and then they can keep, you know, the majority of the revenue. Um, I don't know, because again, it's diverging from the core business model. But again, if you look at Deliveroo like three, four years ago, they were only doing food delivery. They were really focusing on that. Now they've expanded. They're doing grocery. They're doing boots. Um, it's really kind of grown. It's not just food delivery anymore. You can literally, it's like a mini Amazon. You can pretty much get anything on it and it will probably keep on expanding and moving away from food. Food will continue to be its core, but it's not going to be the only thing. You will probably get to a point that maybe you can even do courier delivery. So I, I can send you something from my house to your house um, and just book a delivery rider to do the, the delivery, just the delivery, nothing else. Mm. Which um, in Spain, for example, like uh, there's a company called Glovo and they already offer that. You can literally just book a courier as part of everything else that they do. Now they've launched fashion, you can buy clothes on it. So that's where I see things, you know, they will probably continue to expand. That's why I'm thinking, could they start thinking about, you know, licensing? Um, they can see which brands sell, they can see which ones are the really popular ones, they can see what people search for in which areas that might be low demand. So that's why I think, you know, it's kind of like a no brainer for me. They, they will probably do it at some point. I, I hope, um these aggregators actually listening to this program because they're getting some fabulous free strategic advice. So yeah, um, listen here. Fantastic. <laughs> um, we, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about um, uh, franchising and licensing and sort of moving into food halls and so on. Um, is there a particular, another particular area that you'd like to to talk about while we're here. If not, we can carry on as we were, but I'm just wondering whether there's anything buzzing around in your head that you feel we might uh, usefully discuss for the next few minutes. I think maybe it's worth bringing up kind of like where the Athenian started and how I see kind of like parallels because we're a company that started as a street food um, back in 2014. Where was that? In, uh, in, in North London, in Haringey, uh -huh. tiny, tiny stall. And... Um, Obviously, that's for a company starting with food that's very low risk. Um, it makes it easier. And I see a lot of parallels with dark kitchens now because that's also very low risk uh, for someone to launch um, and set up a concept from scratch. And I feel like we've kind of 
come a little bit full circle. We started from street food. We, we over a two year period, we went into like small takeaway locations. Um, we actually launched on Deliveroo while we were still a street food, which I still remember. And I was like, wow, Deliveroo allowed us to sell from a stall. That's, that's a sign of a very progressive company. I was really surprised. I felt like almost like, is that allowed, you know, <laughs> in the sense that we're not a restaurant, you know, at the time we were not a restaurant, but that was clearly a sign of a very forward thinking company. And um, over time, we uh, we moved, we transitioned from street food into shipping containers and permanent takeaway locations. And then right before the pandemic hit, um, we opened our first delivery kitchen with additions. And um, that was a pretty good indicator of, you know, what the delivery kitchen can generate in terms of revenue and profit. And then when the pandemic hit, we went 100% online. Now in a post-pandemic world, we still have a lot of delivery kitchens and massively rely on delivery. And uh, now we're going into the licensing model. So it's kind of like a very kind of natural evolution of where I see the market evolving and uh, heading towards. And um, it will be interesting to see what these platforms uh, do to participate in that kind of like evolution and change in the future. Um, but yeah, I think it will only take one of them to start experimenting with maybe one or two of the ideas that are brought up. And then, you know, everybody else is going to jump on it. So, so you talked about, um, uh, before you talked about the sort of relationship between bricks and mortar and that experience and the customer experience. How, how does that work within the Athenian? So in the bricks and mortar because our business model is more like a fast casual uh, takeaway, it's not a sit down, three course meal, very formal restaurant. Um, we have kiosks, people uh, order through the self checkout and then they collect their order. So at the end of the day, even though it's not a delivery, it's a, for, for our employees, for example, and how the kitchen is operated is almost the same thing. Um, instead of having a rider collecting the order is the actual customer. So from that point of view, I see very little difference between a bricks and mortar, how it's being operated and a, a delivery kitchen, uh, which just makes our operation much simpler in that sense. With regard to connecting with your customers, though, Tim, we had a podcast and we had this whole discussion around connecting with customers through digitally, personally, the different touch points. Do you feel by having that, both bricks and mortar and the delivery, even though the delivery is bigger for you, it enables you to create your brand, make the Athenian grow into the franchise partners for the future? I definitely see value in having bricks and mortar, but I wouldn't underestimate the power of delivery. We've uh, put a lot of emphasis in the design and branding for our brand um, and also in the packaging. So... Everything's beautifully designed. It's very bold branding. So when people receive an order at home, I feel like they do get an experience of what the Athenian, because ultimately when you receive an order at home, your only channel of communication with a customer about what the brand is about is through the packaging ultimately. So that really needs to send a really bold statement. Um, most of the time we send handwritten messages on the bag to customers. We might send like a little freebie to say thank you for the order. And I, I feel like that goes a long way. People really do appreciate it now. And um, that's why I think there is a good, th there is opportunity to communicate the brand with the customer, even through delivery. Um, and um, we, we definitely take advantage of that. Also from um, a brand update point of view, having a very big bricks and mortar operation over a long period of time 
uh, will slow a company down in the in the sense that you cannot be so agile. For example, we did a major brand, major rebrand um, last year, and um, obviously rebranding something at dark kitchen level is all you can almost do it overnight because you just update your menu photos. It's all digital. Um, the only thing that might take about a month or two to update is the packaging, printing new packaging, um, but everything else is pretty much you can do it overnight. If it's like something on the website, you can update it's digital. However, if you have, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 restaurants, physical restaurants, if you decide to do a rebrand, which I think should happen every five years, because um, that's that's why you start getting to see brands getting really tired. They don't look so up to date. Um, feel like a brand refresh is something that should happen quite regularly. But once you get to that sta stage of like 20 plus physical restaurants, it becomes very expensive to do it. So that will hinder you and it will pull you back from being able to be more agile and more like a, a startup mentality, which ultimately, you know, over time, I think companies uh, have the tendency to just slow down and become more comfortable and just not be so agile as they used to be when they were like a startup. So my intention is to, to keep the Athenian at a startup state for you know as long as i can <laughs> peter that's really interesting isn't it what was said we we've had the discussion recently around different brands and i'm not going to mention any of them but around how easy it is to forget where you started forget where your path was what was the objective that they look tired that they need a refresh that they forgot their direction i find that absolutely amazing what tim's just said about the branding and it's something that we haven't discussed either on this where this whole delivery world gives you the opportunity to do that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, it, it also relates to not just restaurants, but, but anything that people buy that has a brand to it. And um, up, up rating it, uh, changing it because customers change or perhaps because the competition changes, all of these things are important. Um, I agree. So adding to... Um, what Tim has said about rebranding, the thought struck me that if you're able to rebrand quickly overnight, does that lead you to want to upgrade or change more than is necessary? Uh, you know, just almost do it for the sake of it. It's a good point. I generally always try to remind myself that if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, but at the same time, uh, I feel like because it's such a fast moving industry, not just an industry, I feel like we're, we got, we live in very fast moving times in general. Um, in the last decade alone, there's just so many things that have changed um, our lives. Um, even delivery, for example, Deliveroo has just 10, 10 years, 10 years old. So they literally only started as a service a decade ago. So it's very, very new. Um, and I, I don't think we realize how new a lot of these things that have become very habitual are in our lives. So uh, to answer your question, you've got a good point. And that's why it should only be necessary to do so over a certain period of time. That's why I said maybe every five years is a good indicator, not necessarily like a complete change that the brand like the customers don't recognize it but something that will bring it more into right now into what people are looking for right now and i feel like a lot of brands don't don't do that they just let the brand kind of like slide and just stay the same and then after 10 years it just starts to look really kind of like just not very current i've just got another question for tim what gave you the inspiration for the book because peter start where we started this podcast today he says he wrote a couple he's got one 
what made you, did you think one day I'm just going to, I'm going to write this book around your culture, around your bringing up? Well, what gave you the inspiration? It's a good question. I would, I never thought in my life I would be called an author of a, of a book, even a cookbook, you know, like, yeah, I just never thought um, that would happen. But, you know, having a restaurant business and um, cooking at home is something that I do. And um, it's generally something I'm very passionate about. Um, like I look at the Athenian as a movement of trying to change and update the images that people have of Greece and the food and the cuisine in general. And I feel like through a cookbook, you can communicate that more universally because with a restaurant, you can only reach so many customers. But with a book, you can basically, you know, reach everyone that that book is available internationally. People can buy it on Amazon in the US, in Australia everywhere so it doesn't you don't need to know the Athenian to buy the book you just need to have an interest in Greek food and I feel like that really stands out is the most kind of like current and most um, representative uh, for my generation in my view of what's out there uh, for Greek cuisine and um, now we're putting more of an emphasis on our Instagram and social media on um, kind of like recipes, easy things that you can make at home, things that we don't sell in the restaurant, but just a different way to interact with people from, you know, not just necessarily that people know that the Athen- know, that know the Athenian, just anyone that has an interest in cooking. So I see that as an avenue to um, expand the brand and get more people to interact with the brand, even if they've never had the food, because maybe they don't have access, they're not within a delivery radius of the Athenian. What's the title of the the book. You said you can get it on um, Amazon and you said that it's also possible to get your, your recipes and so on. Where can people go for that? So three questions really. So the cookbook is available nationwide in all of the major book retailers in the UK. Um, outside of the UK, people can get it on Amazon. Um, What's it called? It's called uh, The Athenian, Eat Like a Greek. Um, it's published by uh, Penguin, Random House. And um, for uh, recipes, uh, people can follow us on Instagram at the Athenian UK, um, TikTok, YouTube Shorts. That's it. Okay, Peter, I'm going to get the book, and uh, yeah. I think Tim, what you'll find is sales of that will go up maybe August, September time, as everyone comes back from their summer holidays, Possibly, yeah. Uh, and they want to recreate fabulous dishes either that they've had at the Athenian before, they've been to Greece or one of the islands, and it's there, isn't it? We, the sun's out today, so we're getting towards <laughs> this summer, Peter, that we keep talking about. I think that's a very happy note to call this episode to a close. A huge thank you to Tim for taking time out of your busy schedule today, so thank you for that and for all the insights and um, the opportunity to explore a great range of ideas. And here's a reminder that whether you're a delivery company, a marketplace app, a technology company, restaurant owner, investor, or simply someone who loves to order takeout, the delivery profits is the perfect way to stay informed and ahead of the curve in the world of food delivery. You'll find the delivery profits on Spotify, Apple, Google, or the other places where you normally get your podcasts. And there's more at www.thedelivery.world forward slash the delivery profits tune in to the next edition of the delivery profits for the insights interviews and analysis that will keep you ahead of the game in this exciting and ever-evolving industry with that it's goodbye from today's delivery profits that's me john and tim goodbye 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 thank you